Just here, it would not be amiss to return to an exciting incident, which lasted some days in connection with one of my insurance cases. It happened shortly after the death of my medical friend and former college chum. The sad announcement of his death, for to me it was a sad one, set me to thinking. I began to seriously consider the chances of my carrying out the plans which my old friend and I had spent so many anxious days and nights in perfecting. The prospect was a good one, and I desired, and finally determined, to carry at least one of them to a conclusion, single-handed and alone. No person was to be in my confidence, and I set to work getting my scheme in order. Some time previous to this I had, while in Minneapolis, insured my life for $20,000 in favor of my wife. Failure in this one instance, where my friend was concerned, made a desperate man of me. I determined to succeed at any cost. The prospective profits in the work were most alluring. The chance for detection, of course, must be guarded against, and the contingencies of all other serious accidents which might arise and make exposure certain had to be taken into consideration. Upon figuring up what the gross proceeds had been in similar operations, the result showed me that, with the very modest outlay of $3,950, they aggregated $68,700. This work, one can easily see, was profitable beyond any legitimate work that might be entered into. The assessments having been paid up on my recent $20,000 policy to and including the month of June 1887, I thought that it was time to bring this case to a close. In order to realize the $20,000 before September 1st, I accordingly went to Chicago and had a long conversation with an acquaintance of a year before who was an assistant at Blank Medical College over certain details of my proposed work. However, I found it more difficult to obtain a body that would prove a substitute for my own. I had a cow lick which could not be imitated by artificial means, and it was absolutely necessary to get a subject so favored by nature, and I had a most gloomy wait, lasting about two weeks, going to the dead room of the college each morning to inspect the arrivals which had come in during the preceding twenty-four hours. Finally. My patience was rewarded, about May 20th, when I was informed that a man had been killed accidentally falling from a freight car. The body in due time arrived, and after making a most minute and critical examination of it, I determined that it was just what I required for my purpose. Satisfactory arrangements having been made with the hospital for my possession of the subject, I started out to ascertain the best way to have it moved. It was here that a chain of most extraordinary and gruesomely interesting circumstances began. All the precautions that the mind can conceive and the body execute had to be brought into execution. No chance for detection now could be entertained. No loophole for surprise and discomfiture was to be left uncovered, and I had to do all that was vitally necessary to end this alone. Knowing that I had a most trustworthy friend in a certain express man, I at once repaired to his abode. My surprise and discomfiture were great. He was dead. He had died some time previously. All hope for assistance in that quarter, naturally, had to be given up. 
From inquiries I made of the janitor of the college, I learned that a certain express man in the neighborhood could be employed for the purpose I desired, as he had on former occasions been hired for outside work by some of the men in the institution. I called at this man's address, and after seeing him I stated my business. How much will you charge me for taking a body from blank college to Polk Street Station? I asked. Five dollars was the reply this man gave me. This price being satisfactory to me, we started for the place where I had ordered a trunk to be made according to a special design. This trunk was one of more than ordinary large size, and externally it resembled one of those iron-bound, burglar-proof arrangements jewelry salesmen call sample cases. Inside, the construction was of a very elaborate nature the greater portion of it being occupied by a large zinc box of sufficient dimensions to allow a man to occupy it by doubling his joints, where doubling was necessary. This was fitted by a lid of wood to deaden any sound that might be caused through the possible rattling of ice, which was to surround the inner box. The entire trunk was made waterproof, but who knows how it could travel on a railroad train without undergoing severe usage and possible demolition. The trunk was taken to the college, the body placed in it with the aid of the expressman, who did not seem to relish that sort of work. He seemed to weaken at times, and once or twice I noticed him grow pale. After the trunk was carefully packed and ready for conveyance to the station, we found that it was almost too early to remove it. After standing about for some time, the Yahoo grew more courageous, inasmuch as he gazed through a few inverted liquor glasses when their contents were amber-lined. He said, I can't do this job for five dollars. Why not? I asked, very much surprised. Because if I make a hearse of my wagon and personally act as a combination driver, undertaker, and pallbearer, I must have thirty-five dollars. If I don't get that sum, I shall inform the police that all is not right. Of course, I expostulated with the man, and resorting, as often before, to my sugar-and-fly policy, I placated him, gave him five dollars in cash, and promised the other thirty dollars when we reached the station. This was all right, for he said if I did not pay, he would have me arrested instantly. In due course of time, the trunk was carted to the Illinois Central Station, and, after having it placed on the platform, the driver turned to me and demanded the thirty dollars forthwith. This was the chance I had been waiting for. I shall not give you another cent, said I. Oh, yes, you will. Besides, I have half a mind to demand the return of the five dollars from you for attempting to extort money from me. You would stand a great chance of getting it, too. Now give me that thirty dollars, or to the cops I go. You may go, but first listen to me and answer my questions. Did you not, in the presence of the janitor and myself, place the corpse in the trunk? Did you not haul it there? Have you not assisted me in all this work? Yes, I have. That man was murdered. 
speak a word about it to anyone, and I will have you arrested as an accessory to his murder. The driver was evidently very much frightened, as his eyes widened and bulged, and his hair began to assume a perpendicular position. The body must go in the lake, I continued, and let the waves bury it forever from human sight. I hope you understand me. He told me that he did not want any more money, and as I knew his address, he would always be at my service at any future time. Having purchased my ticket for the Timberlands of Michigan, I checked my trunk, and it began its adventurous trip north. Everything had gone along as well as I could have wished until our train was nearing Grand Rapids. My attention was attracted to a group of trainmen standing about a trunk in the baggage section which occupied the forward part of the smoker in which I was traveling. I got up and looked closer, and was almost stricken dumb with horror when I saw that it was my trunk, and that the men were talking as though they suspected something wrong with it. I immediately changed my plans about going north directly, and was in a feverish state of excitement when we reached Grand Rapids. As soon as the trunk was deposited in the baggage room, I went in as though to claim it. As I did so, I noticed a stranger looking at me and on the trunk in a manner which made me feel quite uncomfortable. I pretended not to notice him, and thereby got a better chance to study him. I soon concluded he was a secret service man and that I had been spotted. Realizing that some decisive and telling action was necessary at this time, I stepped to the telegraph office and wired myself at the hotel as follows. Holmes, look after my trunk, which left Chicago this morning. Signed, Harvey. The initial H was the same as that on my trunk, and when I got to the hotel, I showed the clerk the telegram, which he held for me, and engaged communicating rooms for Harvey and myself with a bath attachment. I sent a porter for the trunk, and, after seeing it in the rooms, I then learned the cause which attracted the attention of the trainmen to it. My suspicions had been confirmed, for an awful odor emanated from the trunk and then I knew that the man had been dead longer than the college attendants stated, and also that I had been imposed upon. Fearing that such a contingency might arise, I formulated a plan while on the smoking car of transferring the body from the Chicago trunk to another, which I should purchase. After locking my room carefully, I started to look out for a suitable trunk, but stopped long enough to tell the clerk that my baggage would be on hand in the course of an hour or so. It was growing toward evening, and I had but little time to spare. After looking about for a short while, I soon got a used trunk that suited my purpose quite well. I ordered the lock to be changed on it, and while this was being done, I made several trips to a couple of plumbing shops and bought a considerable quantity of old lead pipe. I had this cut up into suitable lengths and made into packages. I made several trips to the trunk store, and each time I placed a package of the heavy material in the new trunk, after which I had it sent to my room at the hotel. This was done to make it appear that it was filled with my effects. The day had been warm, and the night also promised to be sultry. 
No time was to be lost in getting things in order and to guard against surprises. During my several trips to the trunk store, I noticed the man I first saw at the Grand Rapids station was looking after me, and I was placed on my guard. As I said, the night was going to be warm. I knew that it would be but a short time until all the floor I occupied would be permeated with the odor from my friend in the trunk. I went out again and secured a waterproof hunting bag and carried a considerable amount of ice to the room, which I placed in the bathtub. I then took the lead pipe from my new trunk and laid it beside the first one in the adjoining room. While doing this work, the atmosphere became so stifling that I had to hoist the window. This window opened out onto the roof of a porch, and by the time that was done, it had grown quite dark. I decided to defer further work until after I had eaten. As I entered the dining room, I could see the eye of that mysterious stranger watching me in the reflection of the mirror from the bar. I was somewhat troubled at this, and I did not enjoy my dinner very well. After my repast, I lounged out to the office and then went to my room. I went to the bathroom first, drained the water from the ice, and prepared a place for the dead man to lie in. When this was done to my satisfaction, I went to the trunk my supposed friend was to occupy and opened it. The usual balancing and cording precautions which I had taken were all right, but the face that met my gaze was drawn, colored and hideous, yet it somewhat resembled the outlines of my own when I first secured the body. The sight was disgusting, yet when I looked upon it and realized that at least $20,000 would come to me after a little further trouble, I gazed on it as a very good investment which was about to mature. The monetary possibilities of this work set me thinking, and yet I knew I had in this instance to work rapidly. I loosed the cords, raised the body, and carried it to the bathtub, where I sought to freeze it hard enough for another day's transportation. There, in the twinkling light of a solitary gas jet, lay all that was mortal of... I knew not whom... I claimed him as my own, and as I studied the now rigid form, strange questions arose and floated across my mind. Who was he? What had he been? Was he a father, a lover, or a brother? Was his absence from home noted? Was he cared for? Or was he, like myself, a wayward son? Such thoughts troubled me, but little before, and yet, as he lay there on his frozen bed, I, seemingly fascinated by the awful solemnity of death, did not seem able to tear myself away. The gas flickered. A door slowly opened, and before I knew what had transpired, I was given the opportunity of looking straight into the eyes of the mysterious stranger, the Secret Service man, over the glittering barrel of a death-dealing weapon. Not a word was spoken, but our eyes instinctively turned toward the object in the bathtub. "'Consider yourself under arrest, sir,' said the nocturnal intruder. "'I am at your service,' I replied, knowing that it would be useless to try conclusions with that man in such a small room. While he was getting some iron bracelets out of his pocket, 
I mentally determined to have him in the street, glad enough to get away from me in my rooms. I was ready for him when he walked out into the next room, he keeping his pistol leveled at me with one hand and trying to get his handcuffs out with the other. By the merry little twinkle in his eye, I read his character as though it lay printed before me on an open page. It was part of my game, and I intended to play my hand as well as I knew how. He seemed to hold a good one, too, but I had the greatest power, money. I knew that it was worth the while to play it as best I could. Desperate, indeed, did my situation become when I saw that he had a companion awaiting us in the room, and a glance at the window explained how their entrance had been effected. As we got into the chamber, the man with the pistol, who was much larger than his associate, looked at me and winked. "'John, go to the station house and wait until I send for you. But do not say anything until you get word,' my captor said to the other. No sooner had the man called John gotten out on the porch roof than the other turned to me with, "'This is a nice sort of business, and I have entrapped you neatly in it. It looks very much like the rope for you.' "'My dear sir, you will let me explain, I hope. This man was my brother. He had just died of a malignant and very contagious disease.' He had been sent to a medical college for dissection, and when I learned of it, I determined to save the body from the demonstrator's knife. Come, look again, and see if you cannot discern a family resemblance. As I was talking, the man drew back, and at my invitation turned an ashen color. His hands trembled, and as they dropped listlessly, the pistol fell to the floor and exploded with a loud report. Critical as the moment was, it was time for me to act, and I made a successful effort to get the weapon. And as I did so, I ordered him to go to the window and save his life, if it was of any value to him. He lost no time, and as his form disappeared over the ledge of the porch, I fired a shot into the air. This, of course, brought the landlord and several guests to my door, which I opened in response to repeated knockings. I was very much excited, apparently, and called out, There! See! There he goes! The crowd of half-dressed men and women rushed to the window and gave me a chance to close the bathroom door. Heavens, but I did breathe more easily! The escape was a narrow one, but I succeeded in allaying suspicion by saying that the man had attempted burglary, and as I shot he jumped from the roof. The figure of a running man was discernible in the darkness when they were at the window, which had the effect of verifying my explanations. After they had gone, the landlord offered me the use of another room, which I, of course, declined. Now my real hard work was to begin. The man was apparently satisfied that I had told the truth, yet he had a suspicious look which I did not like. As early as possible in the morning, I packed my own trunk with the lead pipe, and to leave that of the fictitious Harvey while I took my dead friend from his frigid resting place, and repacked him in the new trunk. Upon going to breakfast, I explained that I must go to a place which was somewhat distant, 
on the early train, but would leave my friend's trunk in the room as he was expected at any time. Therefore, I had the porter take the newly packed trunk to the station, where he bought me a ticket and had the trunk checked to my pretend destination. I timed myself to get to the station just as the train was going out, and as the coast seemed clear, I boarded the smoker. I knew if the detective missed me, he would go at once to the hotel, and if he found my trunk there, he would naturally wait around for an hour or so, thus giving me a pretty good start of him. When about thirty miles from Grand Rapids, I got off to get a paper. The newsstand was next to the Western Union Telegraph Office, and as I looked over the operator's shoulder, he received the following message. Look out for man and black trunk. Left here this A.M. Arrest and hold him. I must have looked queerly, but I inquired in a natural way how far it was to blank, my destination. Forty-eight miles, was the reply of the operator, and without raising his eyes, he called a boy to take the message to the station policeman. But he was too late. The train started. I swung on, and immediately got hold of the baggage porter. I showed him my ticket and asked him to put my trunk off at the next station, which was but eight miles distant. This he did, and it was a dismal place indeed. When I got off the train, it was raining. It had been raining hard, evidently, all night. The mud was hub-deep on the lumber wagons, and the prospect of stopping there was not a pleasant one. I learned upon making inquiries that I could get to a little town fifteen minutes distant, which connected with another railroad, and to do this I would have to drive. I determined to go, however, as the detective, no doubt, would haunt every station between Grand Rapids and my destination until he got some trace of me, when he would learn that I had gotten away from him. It was with difficulty that I secured a conveyance, which I did in the evening, as I did not want a driver, because I knew the trunk had become troublesome again on account of the odor of my dead companion. Having carefully attached the trunk to the rear of a back-number buckboard, a dismal trip was begun. As I said, I had considerable difficulty in getting in the rig, and as it was, I had to leave a deposit large enough to buy several of that particular kind. After seven hours of the worst riding it had been my misfortune to endure, I reached a small town from which a combination freight and passenger train was about to leave. It was one of those accommodating trains. I saw the conductor, who agreed to hold the train for half an hour. This delay was for the purpose of giving me a chance to freshen my subject up a little. Ice was not procurable, and as there was no drug store in the town, I went to the grocery store, got the proprietor up, and bought several bottles of ammonia, which, when combined with one or two other simple things, made a solution that rendered my quiet friend quite acceptable so far as one's old factories were concerned. This operation of attempted preserving was done in the privacy of the baggage car, and all went well until we got about three miles from town. Through the negligence of some section hands, a rail was left without the fish plate being bolted on, and the whole train was ditched. The engineer was killed, and the conductor was badly injured. 
as also were two or three passengers. I escaped through a window, and after helping some of the injured who needed surgical attendance, I went to the baggage car. It was a wreck. So was most of the baggage. My trunk and one or two others were intact, and while awaiting the arrival of the relief train and wrecking crew, my thoughts again got to wandering. There was a score of us. Some were injured, one dead, and all of us anxious. The morning was just breaking. The rain had ceased to fall. And, as I looked away down the railroad, I could just distinguish a cloud of steam and smoke through the fog, which showed the approach of a train. Something seemed to tell me that I was about to be confronted with some disagreeable occurrence, and, in anticipation of this premonition becoming a fact, I quickly hauled my trunk to a little shed used by workmen, and impatiently awaited the wrecker. Therefore, I was not astonished when I saw that the first man to alight was my friend, the detective of Grand Rapids. He also saw me, but seemed to pay very little attention to me, as he knew I could not escape. For by this time it was broad daylight and no trains coming or going. Finally he accosted me, and we entered into an agreement to have my trunk taken to the junction of the road, which was done to my entire satisfaction, and, I have every reason to think, to his also. Just what that little agreement cost me I am not at liberty to say, for that officer still lives. It was a dark and dreary day when I got into the wild wilderness of northern Michigan's lumber tracks. I was soon established in a hut, and it shortly became known that I was a lumber operator of considerable means, and was regarded with much consideration by the hardy hewers of trees and strippers of bark. The men were all honest, it seemed. So one day I went out into the evergreen forest and failed to return. A week or so later, what was purported to be my dead body was found pinioned to the earth by a fallen tree. Money and papers were found in the clothes on the body which established my identity beyond the question of a doubt. Thus, by case number five, after a great deal of trouble and thrilling escapes from the law's officers, I added a neat little sum of $20,000 to my bank account by September 1st, as I had anticipated. When I had finished with the trunk, I presented it to a friend, but at the time did not tell to what use it had been put. Some years afterwards, I met him at his home and told him all about it. Then he and his wife declared that they often had found it open, no one having touched it, when both declared that it had been closed and locked the day previous. End of section 7